and welcome to The Analytic Christian, a podcast exploring topics in Christian philosophy and theology. In today's brief Ask a Scholar episode, Jordan talks with Dr. Randall Rouser about unbelief and how best to understand Paul's comments in Romans 1, 18-20. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the discussion. Hey there, Dr. Rouser. Hey, good to be with you, Jordan. Thank you for coming back on. We had a discussion about uh, genocide texts in the Bible and how to interpret those. So go check that out after you watch this video. But this video, we're going to be asking the following question. How should we interpret Romans 1, 18 to 20? Does this passage teach that all atheists really do know that there is a God, but they just suppress this knowledge because of sin? Are all atheists resistant in their non-belief? Or are there at least some atheists that are non-resistant in their non-belief? What do you think? Great question. Um, okay, so let's first of all talk about the text itself so that we're not, we avoid the danger of proof texting. Uh, so the big picture is that Romans 1, 18 to 20 is part of a longer sweep of Romans 1 to 3, where the overall focus is on the universal sinfulness of humanity. Romans 1, Paul begins giving examples from the Gentile world. Romans 2, he begins to talk about Jews and the law and their own responsibility. And it culminates in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, And with that in mind as the backdrop, I think there's a certain irony when I often hear Christians, whenever they talk about Romans 1, it seems to be, or at least very often, is either to condemn atheists or gay people. Um, And so this is especially what what this is of interest to me, when they're kind of missing, I think, or danger of missing the bigger picture, the whole point of Romans 1 to 3 is that we are all under God's condemnation. So let's just keep that in mind. The second thing I would want to add as a caution is that when we talk about the concept of atheism, it's a modern concept as we have it today. Really, I would say 1700s, 1800s, and onwards. Uh, in the ancient world, there was this word in Greek, atheos, but it, it had a different meaning than it has today. It was a relative meaning. So if you denied my God, you are atheos. So for example, there's this uh, famous martyrdom in 155 of the bishop Polycarp of Smyrna. And the magistrate tells him, you have to renounce the atheists, meaning Christians, And he says, yes, away with the atheists. And he swings his hand at the crowds that are surrounded. And they realize he's just condemned them. He's called them the atheists. He's turned the charge back on them. And that's an example of how the word atheist and the concept had a different meaning than it does in the modern world, where today it's a sort of absolute denial that any god exists. In the ancient world, it tended to function as you denied my god. Um, So we have to keep that in mind, that we're not reading back anachronistically later concepts into an earlier text. That said, you can still get to the nub of the issue, even with that caveat in mind. And so so let me just uh, give what is the key word and then an illustration uh, as to why this becomes a problem as you've stated it. So Paul says that God's existence and nature are katharao in Greek. Now, that word means to, it gets variously translated, but usually to be clearly seen, uh, the KJV, the NASB, the NIV, all translated as clearly seen. The ASV, I believe, has clearly perceived. 
the general idea is that the evidence for God or it's either reasoned evidence or it's just manifestly in a non in an intuitive way it's just obvious either either way you could go but it's just it's just you can't deny it that it's just overwhelming so here's an illustration uh, Jones and Smith and Jones they work at Denny's and one day Jones comes in and Smith says to her hey you weren't on you weren't here yesterday you know Tom Cruise came into Denny's and Jones is like no he didn't and Smith says yeah he did I'll bet you 10 bucks and Jones says okay I'll take that bet and then Smith pulls out the security footage from the previous day showing Tom Cruise or what looks like him walking into the restaurant with an entourage. And she shows a selfie where she took with him on her phone. And lastly, she points Jones to the website TMZ, this well-known gossip website that has a story about how Tom Cruise went to this Denny's the previous day. Based upon that evidence, you could say it's katharao. It's, it's manifestly obvious. It's clearly perceived that Tom Cruise was at Denny's. And at that point, if Jones says, no, he wasn't, I don't believe it for a second, that was an imposter, you would reasonably conclude that Jones at that point is being obstinate, right? That she's arguing a reasoning in bad faith, that she really does know that Tom Cruise was at the restaurant the previous day, and she's just refusing to admit it. And that is the reasonable argument. I can see how someone gets that argument from, from Paul here. When he seems to say, well, well, God's existence in nature is katharao, well, then you could say, okay, anybody who denies it is like Jones. The evidence is manifestly overwhelming, either intuitively or through a reasoned discursive process that God exists. So if you deny it, you're just like Jones, arguing in bad faith. Now, let me give you a couple responses to that, having set up the problem. So the first one, I'm just going to say, it seems to me that you can't just settle this issue a priori. Now you could say initially, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna consider that that is the case. That in fact every single person is in sinful rebellion. Nonetheless, if you go out and you see a lot of evidence that it just seems not to be the case always that people are in sinful rebellion, that should drive you back to the text and maybe reconsider what's going on. So what kind of evidence would that be? Well, I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, J.L. Schellenberg, or John Schellenberg, is a well-known Canadian philosopher and a leading atheist philosopher of religion. In fact, he developed an argument called the argument for the non-existence of God from divine hiddenness. The interesting thing is Schellenberg, I've, I've talked with him about this, and he grew up as a Mennonite Christian, devout, and he went off to university, and he really wanted to understand the evidence for God's existence, and he studied the arguments and he came away convinced that God, on the balance of evidence, did not exist. What I didn't see, and what I haven't seen talking to John Schellenberg, is any evidence of a chip on his shoulder. It wasn't that he wanted to get to that conclusion. It just seemed to be that he found himself at that conclusion. He didn't especially ask for it, but he reasoned himself into the non-existence of God. And I'll just say that the principle of charity says to me that when I don't have any overwhelming evidence to say a person is lying, perhaps lying to myself and perhaps lying to themselves as well, I should be inclined to accept this, the weight of their evidence, of their testimony. And in this case, that provides some significant evidence. And I know a lot of John Schellenberg's. So, I mean, people often, they want to focus on the angry atheists that they've met. Um, well, what about the John Schellenberg's out there, right? Um, another thing we could say to add into this is when people are angry, it doesn't automatically mean they're angry at God. Maybe they're angry at the church, right? Just keep that in mind as well. Um, now, this leads me then to another example. 
Bob Giono. Now, this example I encountered in the film Deliver Us From Evil. It's a 2006 documentary that tells a story of a Catholic priest who was a sexual predator and he raped dozens of children in California mm -hmm. and the church for years protected him. And Bob Giono was interviewed. He was a, a faithful Catholic and father who discovered that his daughter had been raped for years by their beloved Catholic priest, even in his own home on multiple occasions. Mm -hmm. And Bob Giono became an atheist after that. And you can just see the, the pain right, written into every pore of his being. And when I look at Bob Giono and I say, at every moment since he's learned that this priest repeatedly raped his daughter and God stood by and did nothing so far as he can see, is it that God's evidence is overwhelmingly present to him and immediately undeniably present and God's attributes are overwhelmingly and undeniably present to him? And frankly, I'm just unwilling to say that. It doesn't seem to me that every Bob Giono, their unbelief can simply be dismissed by saying they are in sinful rebellion against God. So I'm at the point of thinking there's some real problems with this reading of Paul. Um, now I'm going to add one more, and it's this, that if we follow this reading of Paul consistently through, it ends up proving too much. Let me explain what I mean. So um, if it is the case that God's existence and, and attributes are always katharao, they're always manifestly, overwhelmingly present to people, then it also follows that any time a Christian has any question or doubt about God's existence or his nature, that Christian is also sinfully suppressing God's witness and evidence to them. Um, Bob Giono's wife, she remained a Christian, do you think she ever had a doubt or a question about God's existence or his nature? I suspect she likely did. Uh, and what we would be saying is, even though you remained a Christian, in every moment when your belief in God has ever wavered from a sort of strongest strength of certitude, you are in sinful rebellion because you are denying that which is overwhelmingly always present to you. I mean, that, it seems to me, just a completely unreasonable and, and pastorally disastrous response to Christian doubt. Mother Teresa famously had doubts and often talked about them in her journals. She says, if God exists in her journals. And you would be saying to Mother Teresa, every moment you said that, you were sinfully suppressing God's manifest witness and evidence to you. What about autistic people? Um, there's evidence that people on the autistic spectrum statistically find it more difficult to believe in God. And there seem to be several psychological reasons for this. But if you were to say, yeah, but ultimately they're sinfully suppressing uh, their uh, God's overwhelming evidence to them, then again, I just think that that's just a very pastorally disastrous and I think just empirically incorrect assessment. Right. So it seems to me that for several reasons, we ought to be skeptical about using this verse in a way that would allow us to condemn in principle, a priori, every example, whether it's an atheist or a Christian who doubts, of uh, people who fail to affirm the existence and or the attributes of God. Um, let me conclude then with, with one final point, and then anything else you, you want to follow up on, uh, feel free to do so. What do you do with the text? Right? What do you do with what Paul is saying here? Now, now, to go into depth on Romans 1, 18 to 20 would frankly require us to do some other things like look at Genesis 1 to 3 and Wisdom 13, which are texts that Paul seems to be drawing upon. We're not going to do that here. I just want to say one thing. 
Um, remember the big picture here. Um, keep the main thing the main thing as the saying goes. Well, the main thing here is people sinfully suppressing things that they know and not acting upon those things. Now, let's read the text in a way not to put the spotlight on others, as I said we should avoid, but rather to put the spotlight back on ourselves. So what are things that I think I know that I should be acting on and I don't? Well, I know that I should love my neighbor as myself. I know that I should pray for those who persecute me. I should do unto others as I would have them do unto me. I should take up my cross daily and follow Jesus. And those are the things that I know I should do, and every day I fail to do them. If I want to really get the gist of what Romans 1 to 3 is all about, rather than focusing on atheists or gay people or any other outgroup, I should focus on how I am failing to live out the knowledge that I have been given, culminating in Romans 3.23, that I am have fallen short of the glory of God and am a sinner. Okay, so let me follow up with just a few thoughts, and then we'll wrap up. I, too, have an ex the similar experiences to what you described, where you just meet people, and they're sincere. Uh, I have no, again, like just employing the principle of charity, I, I interpret them charitably just as I would like them to interpret me charitably. They just seem sincere when they say, I really... If God exists, I want to know him. I, I want to be in relationship with him. It's just not clear to me that he does. Or maybe it's it seems like he doesn't. You know, the evidence I think of somebody like my friend Joe Schmidt. Joe seems super honest. <laughs> and I believe Joe when he says, That's why I'm agnostic. It's just not clear to me. It doesn't seem to me like he's you know, living a life that he's suppressing this knowledge. So yeah. That's, I guess that's one of the main reasons I wanted to get you on. You've written this book. I'll have it linked in the description. The eighth, I think it's like, what? what's the title again? Is the Atheist My Neighbor? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's about this question. So now I'm, I'm trying to get my head around how to interpret Paul then. I, I totally get what you're saying. Like, I have this evidence that there are people that, are not resistant. Um, they're, they are very open to God existing and yet they don't believe. So that drives me back to the text. Now, when I get back to the text, it seemed like what you said was maybe what Paul is getting at is, or how we should interpret what Paul is saying is check yourself first, kind of like pull the log out of your own eye before you go. Something like that. Is that, is that, all when you're reading that is that all you're you're getting out of it or i was thinking could it be the case that paul is he's not using hyperbole when he's saying like we all uh sin <laughs> you know it's like romans 3 it's that's where he's this whole one to three is coming in like that's the broader point like we're all sinners yes but maybe this is like a bit of hyperbole or something i don't know what do you think so I think in the background, first of all, is this thing we call the hermeneutical spiral. So when we're trying to apply a text, so we start off with a reading, like every atheist is in sinful rebellion. We, we go out and we test that reading through things like empirical evidence with atheists. We know, like you mentioned, Joe Schmidt, great example, by the way. Uh, and we say, you know what, that doesn't seem to work. Let's go back. And so then you return to the text again. Another great example of that is 
in uh, Matthew 19, where Jesus condemns anybody who divorces for any reason other than pornea and then remarries is an adulterer. And pornea seems to be like sexual infidelity or unfaithfulness. And what that says, or it seems to say, is that anybody who divorces their spouse because their spouse was trying to kill them, I mean, that I don't, I, I'm not convinced that you can classify that as pornea. And so in that case, you would say that person must now remain celibate for the rest of their life because they divorced a spouse who was trying to kill them rather than one who cheated on them. Uh, and if they did remarry, then they're now in adultery. It's not a marriage. And that would drive me back to that text and say, I think I have to take put some uh, a spin on what Jesus is doing as I applied in the real world. And so it's the same thing when we come to Romans 1. We say, it just doesn't seem that that God's existence in nature is evident in that way and to everybody all the time. Having said that, are there cases where it is that? Yeah. I think that there's a lot of cases where, where people are, there's this fascinating phenomena, psychological phenomena, where when people are given evidence that goes against their beliefs um, that they can't answer, they will often retrench even more strongly into their beliefs. And so there are a lot of disturbing psychological mechanisms at play in broken human psychology. And I can certainly see Paul is flagging those. I just don't think that we should we should use that as a, as a, as a sort of sweeping absolute text to say, therefore, every case of people not fully being convinced in God's existence or attributes is sinful. Because again, I mean, that just has all sorts of implausible uh, consequences. All right. Well, we'll wrap it up there. Again, you have this book, Is the Atheist My Neighbor? And I'll have it linked in the description so you can go check that out. Also, go check out my interview with Dr. Rouser on those genocide texts that we mentioned and different ways of interpreting those and which one he thinks is most plausible. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Rouser, for coming on and hope to see you again at some point. You bet. Thanks. That's all for this week. If you found this episode valuable, you can leave a review in your podcast app or consider supporting the show on Patreon. The link to the Patreon page can be found in the podcast notes. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.